This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Basements of the famous Red Lion pub in famous political Whitehall. This is Andrew Harrison, I'm the producer of Romaniacs, and I'm with Ian Dunst, and we're doing an emergency podcast for you. Because, as happens every week, no sooner have we finished recording last week's episode, we step out the door and enormous things happen. Uh, in the case of this week, it was firstly, it was the uh, regional impact assessments which leaked pretty much the moment we finished recording, didn't they? And then it was the sudden and astonishing attack on George Soros, uh, which appeared in the Telegraph. Was up in the mail and, and seems to have uh, imported something into British politics that uh, you know had been part of European politics for a long time or fringe European politics and it now looks like, like we're stuck with it. Ian, let's start with Soros. What is going on here? How has this happened and why has it happened? Um, it's hard to tell really whether it's sort of cynicism or ignorance but the, the best thing to do is just to presume that it's ignorance. The news of itself, the fact that Soros was donating this money to Best for Britain Mr. Britain, a previously sort of little heard of anti-Brexit group, which now are clocking up extraordinary amounts of sort of donations on the back of the story, um, should be, you know, sort of newsworthy. It is kind of interesting that he at least is of the judgment that there's enough of a chance to reverse Brexit that he would bother putting his money where his mouth is. He usually has relatively good judgment in terms of how he spends the money that he does for a more liberal society. There's some exemptions, some exceptions there. I mean, he did put a lot of money into sort of drug reform groups that were campaigning at the UN, admittedly without much sort of benefit to that. But nevertheless, most of the time he puts his money where he thinks that there's a chance of success. It is newsworthy that he's doing it. The trouble was the manner in which this was reported. So the Telegraph seemed to go in for pretty much all of the anti-Semitic tropes that you find of the way that Soros is covered in Eastern Europe, but also, of course, the way that, you know, this, this, kind, of a, this kind of thing has been covered in history. I mean, exactly the same that was done in Nazi Germany and the same thing that was really done in the Soviet Union. And that probably isn't anti-Semitism at the Telegraph. I don't believe that it is. I believe it's just sort of rank historical and geopolitical ignorance. And that ended up with the kind of coverage that we got. I mean, where did this kind of idea of Soros as supervillain come from? Because it's it's real kind of it's it's both a mixture of bad Bond villain stuff and kind of 1984 Emmanuel Goldstein international enemy of the people stuff. Is it, it if it wasn't so worrying? It would be silly and trite. It's like, you know, Hydra in the Marvel movies. Mm. Where did mm. it come from? So, I mean, the, the trope is very, very old. I mean, you go back to Nazi Germany and you always see that constant image of sort of the Jewish financier behind the scenes. There was very often the classic images of sort of the, the elected politician, you know, literally being used like a puppet. An image which, by the way, the Sun used this week when they called him a puppet master. It's exactly the kind of language you should not be using. And even days after after the Telegraph thing, they were still using that kind of language. That then translates 
pretty easily towards the kind of regimes we currently see in Poland and Hungary. And I say the word regime specifically because I think ultimately where we are with these guys right now, I mean, the Polish regime is basically a proto-fascist regime at this stage. And I think you could just might as well call Hungary an outright fascist one. And they typically use exactly the same idea. Rootless, if you remember the, the phrase rootless cosmopolitan is a form of sort of an anti-Semitic Soviet Union phrase. Rootless financier chucking money at these various groups in order to destabilize the country that he's in. In Soros's case, he's extremely open about the way that he spends his money. He's extremely open about why he does it, which is to create a more liberal society. He's extremely open about his own motivations. He is Hungarian himself. And the things that took place in his life that led him to decide that this was an appropriate way to start funding politics. So the idea that it's some kind of secret plot is laughable. Is anyone, you know, any? We would know better than anyone. I mean, any Remainer that you've met for the last eighteen months is actively trying to stop Brexit. The idea that any of this is secret in any way is completely different. The truth is, groups like Best for Britain were largely ignored up until this point. But being ignored is not the same as conducting yourself in secret. It is. It's interesting that his secret plot consists of giant billboards around the country and an advertising <laughs> campaign. I mean, it's not, it was also particularly doubly amusing that uh, after this enormous kind of smear campaign, uh, which was followed by the mail dutifully to give your dirty hands off Britain, Mr Soros, mm. uh, he doubled down by saying, I'll match any crowdfunded... Um, <laughs> Donations, so another hundred thousand pounds is going to go into the plot. No, they, they they should attack Soros as much as possible because every time they do it, he gives us all more money. I mean, the Telegraph came out with the secret plot stuff. They included seemingly uncritically the kind of Hungarian accusation that he's trying to destabilise sort of democracies by his intrusions. They had a box of, I mean, just they might as well have written it in the Kremlin. The box that they put on that article, and Nick Timothy, uh, Theresa May's former chief of staff, sort of went out to the bat and sort of angrily saying, well, look, I'm not an anti-Semite. No one's really saying he's an anti-Semite. What we're saying is he's using anti-Semitic tropes in that article. There were several other people bylined in it, but he was one of them. Now, I think the most interesting thing about this isn't so much what are the motivations of the people going into it. It's how similar these old anti-Semitic tropes are to the bog-standard meat-and-potatoes Brexit argument. Remember, the citizen of nowhere stuff came from Timothy, and that is a phrase that is pretty similar to rootless cosmopolitan. This was your favourite moment in politics over the past 30 years, wasn't it, Ian? (laughs) The Theresa May citizens of nowhere speech, which you you love, don't you? It's (laughs) one of your favourites. Huge, huge fan, as as you can imagine. But all of this stuff, the enemy within, trying to undo the will of the people, the idea of a global elite who have no real allegiance to the country that they're in, whether they're citizens of it or whether they're not just floating around. All of these are very well used by tyrannical regimes. So you just think, it's not so much, is Brexit anti-Semitic? Of course it isn't. It's the, the, the ideas that it trades in are similar enough to the historic anti-Semitic tropes that suddenly when they clash up against each other, they find that they get along very well. How fertile is the ground in Britain for this kind of stuff? Because, you know, five years ago, if you'd said this to me, I'd have said, no way, this is fringe lunacy, the, the kind of mm. the mad anti-Semitism of the far right and the far left. And yet Soros wrote what I thought was quite a, a heartfelt and very plausible statement of his position mm. in the Mail on Sunday this week. Mail on Sunday, very Remain paper, edited by Geordie Grigg. In no way was this a proper poor day, in no way at all. <laughs> but the piece was really well-reasoned and really and actually quite moving to how he actually yes. fled Nazi Germany and what happened to his family. And then the comments that you read beneath it were nauseating. They were, yes, we've had enough of you 
thieving bankers, time is up for you, what we're coming to. Obviously, they hadn't read the article because nobody reads the article before commenting. But it, it really worried me. And it made me think, is the ground more fertile for this sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy, puppet master tentacles stuff than maybe I naively thought it was? The, the point that we're at now is Brexit meets reality. And it meets it in a couple of ways. The first one is, uh, you know, the material effect on people's quality of life, which we're going to come on to in a minute. And the second one is just the feeling you get by watching Britain get smacked around on the international stage. Now, we've already seen that. We're going to see it again now that Theresa May is picking fights on freedom of movement during transition that she cannot win. because she has not built the strategic advantage in order to succeed in and that, I think, does provide quite fertile ground for some quite extreme right-wing populism. Now, the exact brand of that is hard to say. Someone will come along, and it could be a Farage kind of guy, who deals in the sort of stands-to-reason-may English sort of attitude towards these things, and yet is fundamentally dealing with quite extremist ideas. And those will be linked to the ideas of enemy with, enemies within and enemies without. Because, of course, the thing that cannot be to blame under this idea is Brexit itself and the incompetence of the people who've tried to manage it. So this is the danger period. This and the years that follow Brexit, if it happens, are the danger period for this kind of politics. And that's why I think it's so important that when this stuff pops its head, in whatever minor, subtle sort of way, we stand up there and say, you absolutely hold the line against this kind of shit. Yeah. Is there anything else we can do? Because everybody, you know, there was a huge outpouring of, you can't say this shit, hmm. from the Telegraph front page, right? When over the weekend, the Brexit press doubled down upon it. And the response was, well, yeah, you would say that, wouldn't you? you guys in the elite you would say that so it's true that the mail just went off its tits and I mean just pay, the next day it was just page after page I mean it must have been about 12 pages of the stuff that they spewed out but the Telegraph itself I think its behaviour has been quite interesting I mean you know the day that 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 edition came out they had a meeting in the newsroom where they had to go and try and assure staff that it was not an anti-semitic front page and that it was not an anti-semitic newspaper which has got to be a fleet street first that's got to be a fleet street and it also shows a degree of panic and nervousness around what was going on they're then putting out stuff saying you know we ultimately think soros is an okay kind of ultimately i think that the, the telegraph got a bit spooked by the strength of the reaction and that there is currency, there is effectiveness in taking them on directly. I mean, we're, we're quite disparaging about Twitter. And Twitter, of course, is not you know, followed by anything like the majority of people. But what it's very useful for is targeting journalists and saying to journalists for a specific report, a specific bit of coverage, you know, this was not on. This was not an okay way for you to have reported this. And by that, that level of social media policing, I think you can get much better coverage so that even when the mail starts attacking this stuff, it's at least holding the line back from where it would otherwise go. So I think all of that is quite effective and it's something that people should keep on doing. So what we're saying really is if you're following Romaniac's cast on Twitter, as you should be, then your, your, your what the fuck tweet towards the Telegraph actually matters. It helps. To an extent. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot better than nothing. Should we move on to the exciting regional impact assessment? So these came out literally right after we pressed stop on last week's show. <laughs> Thank. Talk about conspiracies. This is the conspiracy <laughs> to ruin our podcast. This is the conspiracy. So the regional impact assessments are leaked and it proves to everyone's surprise or demonstrates to everyone's surprise that the areas that voted most enthusiastically for Brexit are going to get hammered most by Brexit. With the exception of Scotland, as many people have mm. pointed out, mm. Scotland where... You know, is going to get hammered a lot harder. And, and Northern Ireland, of course. And Northern Ireland, yeah. Scotland voted 62% to remain. Um, 
you know, Wales is going to be down between 1.5% on the softest Brexit and 9.5% on no deal. The northeast between 3% and 16%. And yet here in the cosmopolitan Romania at London, where people can sit in the pub during the day, we'd lose only between 1% and 3.5%. Apart from, hate to say, I told you so, what does this mean? Um, so this is... Uh... There's, um, there's, there's a guy called Sam Lowe. You know, he has this sort of way of looking at this stuff, talking about who gets benefits from future free trade deals. And the best way of calculating that is to look outside your window and see, are there any cows? Because the chances <laughs> are, if there are cows, you're not going to get shit. And if there aren't cows, you're yeah. going to kind of do okay. Most of the time, the Britain goes out to do an FDA. It is basically going to sacrifice domestic agriculture and manufacturing to secure penetration of its financial services. That's how that is going to work. So if you live around a bunch of offices providing financial services, probably your area is going to be coming out of this thing okay. And if you live around a bunch of fields, probably it won't. Now that isn't just the case in terms of who benefits from any future trade deals that we might do. It's also the case in just how things will operate by virtue of Brexit itself. You have massive tariffs on agricultural goods. You have pretty significant tariffs on lots of manufacturing items. Not most of them, but certainly on cars and certainly on the component parts of those. So it is unsurprising that this is the situation that we found ourselves in. It is, you know, once again, this extraordinary, baffling spectacle of remain areas trying to save leave areas from their own decision. But nevertheless, because that hasn't gotten through, that remains the situation that, we've, that we remain in. And the response... Uh Unsurprisingly, again, from the Brexit press, uh, the Brexit ultra MPs, all commentators, was, well, it doesn't matter because all forecasts are always wrong, without exception. And these are the government's own figures that have leaked. How long can they carry on denying the product of their own deliberation and having people say, yeah, you're absolutely right, all forecasts are wrong? I kind of don't think it matters how often they say I mean, they don't really have any other arguments to fall back on, so now they're just attacking the concept of time and you know, <laughs> the endeavour of prediction. So... That's one thing, but I don't really think it matters. I think something quite fundamental is changing. I would point you towards um, uh, Laura Kunzberg's interview with Theresa May uh, about a week ago, where she talks to her for some time, and she keeps on saying, what are you going to pick? Is it going to be controlled, or is it going to be trade? Is it going to be controlled, or is it going to be trade? Government lucky Kunzberg was really off message. Yeah, yeah, it it turns out her government paycheck hasn't gotten through this week. What went wrong there? (laughs) Yes, um... So what's interesting about that, I think, is that, I mean, the BBC has had a terrible Brexit and is not really on top of things. It's not really asking the right questions, to my mind. And this isn't really about whether you'll remain or leave. This is just about the people have a right to understand the kind of trade-offs that are being made, regardless of whether. What's interesting about that interview is the frame. People with this, this terrible journalistic sort of thing, of what's the frame? What are the assumptions of choices going into an interview? Not what does this person say, but what are the assumptions that are made by the interviewer? Now, the frame there is the one that Remain has been talking about for about a year and a half, and which, frankly, hasn't been accepted by places like the BBC for a really long time. They've mostly accepted the cake and eat it stuff from Boris Johnson, of, oh, you don't need to make choices, this is... Blah, 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 blah. Actually, finally, now, the kind of questions that Theresa May is being asked is, will you take the money or will you take the sovereignty? Because you can't have both. And that is a change to me, and I think that is slowly the bubbling through of these kind of figures. And no matter what the Reese Moggs come out and say, and no matter what kind of batshit insane stuff Steve Baker says from the government benches about conspiracies of Treasury officials or God knows what else, there is something happening in the media where they recognise there is a trade-off. And when the debate is taking place within the context of an appreciation of trade-offs, that fundamentally changes the dynamics. Hmm. These figures are coming from within David Davis's own department. 
These are Dexilis figures. What's Davis's stock at the moment with the Brexit Ultras when his own department's figures that he's trying to sit on <laughs> are saying this is going to hammer your own supporters? Mm. It's, I mean, I think you get a sense of it, don't you, from the way that he was treated by Jacob Rees-Mogg a few weeks ago in that Common Select Committee. I never thought I'd feel sorry for David Davis. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, I also feel sorry for him on a basic human level. Of he looks like he's fading fast, that guy. Like, he's just, <laughs> he's just becoming more and more blurred around the edges. My friend put it the other day, he's just like, you can't see where he begins and ends. It's like the TV reception isn't quite there. Somebody's gone back in time and shot his granddad and now he's disappearing. <laughs> he's fading out of existence. You know, there's a time anomaly around David Davis, and he'll disappear, and we'll never remember that he existed at all. <laughs> what is it? I mean, do you remember? I mean, Blair was already starting to look pretty dreadful before Iraq, and then there's just a period where, if you see a, it's almost a picture of him week by week, yeah. he's aging at like you know one year every week. He's the picture in his own attic. Exactly, and David Davis, I think, is basically in that category now. If he just seems to be aging very, very quickly indeed, as, as you know, just the complete crumpling stress of this process just bears down upon him in the same way that it is on Theresa May. So he's in really the same situation that she is. I mean, he's not on either of those camps around the cabinet table. Right. I would say, arguably, he's more reasonable than certainly than the Boris Johnsons and the Michael Goves. Ultimately, he, he is not a revolution guy. He's the reform guy. You know, we want things to basically stay the same, but we're going to take back some of this control rather than the sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg, let's burn this fucker to the ground and, and start all over year zero stuff. So, I mean, look, he, he seems like he's in a bit of a state. He doesn't have much credibility for the Brexiters or the Remainers. And yet, he is still the name that comes up, I think, most credibly when people talk about who's going to take over from Theresa May. So he's hostage number two. Yeah, well, they're all hostages, really. And they're hostages both to themselves and to the impossible things that they said that they were going to be able to do. So, I mean, all of this does have, at least, there is some reassurance, a sort of moral lesson in there somewhere. Which is, you know, do not tell people that you're able to do an impossible thing because it's just about possible that afterwards they'll ask you to do it. He's, that's the position that he himself has put himself in. So my sympathy is limited, but nevertheless, that is the position that he's in. Well, was, it, was it Lewis Carroll who tried to believe five impossible things before breakfast? And now Britain is believing five impossible things after Brexit. On that bombshell, we return you to the internet. This has been an emergency podcast. From Romania, actually, back on Friday with the regular show, including hot stuff on tariffs, Ian. Hot stuff on tariffs. No, and I mean this is that's, this is basically my Christmas. Absolutely, it's going to be <laughs> it's tariff tariff Friday, and we'll see you then. Thanks for listening.